0: This episode was brought to you by Nail It and Scale It, the world's leading fast growth program for business. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Unstoppable. Today we have Graham Cohen. Those of you listening today are in for an absolute treat. He's the co founder and leadership speaker at Factor C. He works with senior leaders to build more caring and resilient teams from organizations like Queensland Health, Macquarie, EY, NAB, just to name a few. And prior to that, Graham's experience, he worked in senior leadership positions with Johnson & Johnson Feitzer as well as A.T. Kearney, is a board director of RUOK okay? and is the host of the Caring CEO podcast. Wow, that sounds incredible. And he interviews senior leaders who strive for a culture of care and high performance. And today, we are going to learn more about Graham, his story, but also find out more about in 2000 where he crashed and burned and went through a five-year episode of depression, including four suicide attempts. And his. so psychiatrist at the time described it as the worst he'd ever treated yet he is here today inspiring thousands and helping so many people ladies and gentlemen please welcome to the podcast graham cohen graham great to have you here mate great to join you cohen mate and thank you for being here it's uh, it's an honor to still have you here in our presence but more importantly doing the work that you do Um, mate, one of the things I always ask my guests, and I'd be really curious to hear your response, um, when they come on is let's say you show up at a dinner party. There's eight other people sitting around the table. No one knows who you are. Okay. But all of a sudden the conversation goes quiet. Someone turns to you and says, Graham, so what do you do? How do you answer that question?
1: Uh, I say that I'm a resilient speaker and author, and I help leaders build more caring and resilient teams who enjoy growing together that's what I typically say
0: (laughs) and resilience that's a big part of what you do
1: now yeah yeah it is and uh you know I had some very traumatic events in my life which uh, really made resilience a very important component of um, my what I do now and uh, how I stay on track
0: so where did your when you tell your story about your life mate where does it begin like where does it all begin for you
1: uh, well, I grew up in the country, a, a little town called Tari on the north coast of New South Wales, and uh, you know had a great time there. You know, uh, swimming and playing footy, cricket, all that sort of thing. And uh, and then in then came down to Sydney and uh, went to university there. Then got into marketing with Johnson and Johnson and Pfizer. And- Is
0: that what you studied at university? You studied marketing?
1: Yeah, I did. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, and that's you know even though I don't directly work in that area now, I I obviously use it a lot in helping to promote what I do and and uh, to to share the message.
0: And so, how did you how did you get into um, the area or the field of marketing? Like, what what led you to to want to study marketing at university?
1: Uh, I think I was interested in psychology and influence okay. and. Uh, yeah. and I remember some very interesting studies we did. We once were asked to get beer drinkers to evaluate beer blindly in a hotel, and um, so we covered all the beers up, and everyone claimed they only drank Tuis or only only drank um, Reshes or whatever, but the bottom line is they couldn't tell the difference, so that was a really interesting finding, and and I did really enjoy my time with marketing because it's about trying to influence behaviour. And so then you left uh,
0: after studying marketing, you got your degree, you went into the, the corporate side Yeah, and you started working for the big companies.
1: Yeah, with uh, Johnson & Johnson and Pfizer. And, and they were really, really good training organizations. You know, you learned a lot there. It was very professional. And uh, yeah, I really enjoyed that area. And that, but I worked there for probably about uh, six or seven years. And then I went into recruitment and culture yeah. change and uh career coaching so uh yeah yeah right mm.
0: and so at what point did you because i know you 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 had that uh you went through a crash and burn in in 2000 mm. what was that coming off the back what was the work that you were doing at that time
1: at that point i was working as a uh, executive search consultant a headhunter and right that point in time there's a real crash in the market it was the tech crash the the long time ago tech crash and i crashed and burned myself i um you know in a very short period of time i lost my job my marriage broke down um became estranged from my kids and it was a you know just a really very very difficult five years where I, i just never thought that i would uh come out of it
0: and was there a trigger for that like have you had a had you had at this point a history of any kind of mental health
1: yeah, I'd had probably five episodes in my life of um, okay. mental health problems, but this was by far the, the worst, you know, it lasted for so long. I tried so many things, you know, uh, psychological counselling, medication, um, ECT or shock therapy, you know, I tried everything.
0: Yeah, wow. Mm. And so that was obviously quite a journey for you, and it sounds like it was possibly a bit of a traumatic one as well.
1: Yeah, it was very, very traumatic. and. um But it's interesting now, I now see it as a a blessing in a way, because it really forced me to understand what was really important to me. And um, part of my pathway out of it was, how can I share the lessons I learned? And so that led to me writing a series of books back from the brink. And um, a number of those became bestsellers. And that then led to people asking me to speak in regional areas and um, and now most of my work is done in the corporate area, uh, you know working with keynote addresses or online training in the corporate area, all trying to improve personal and uh, and team resilience. And so now this is a, a big part of your purpose.
0: Your experience has obviously shaped you. um it's given you a, a very unique perspective. and I'm assuming with the work that you do now you you help other people that are perhaps in similar situations. So I, I guess out of curiosity, like, what was it that um, because you now obviously work with um, uh, the Caring CEO podcast, yeah. but you're also the board director of Are You Okay? Um, just on the the Caring CEO podcast for a moment, I'm going to assume with based on your experience, there were perhaps some things that you've identified post episode that your employer could have done. To perhaps be a little bit more supportive um, you know with the situation that you were going through and I'm going to assume you know post this event you've learned a lot about the workplace you've learned a lot about mental health and how mental health the workplace can implicate but also support that process what are some of the biggest things that you've learned when it comes to you know us as business owners and some of the things that we can do to support the mental health of our team but also at the same time and I'll follow that up with a different question afterwards Um, build resilience?
1: Mm. Well, one of the things that I've really reflected on was asking people to think about some of their amazing teams have been part of, and it doesn't matter whether whether it was in a a football team or netball or when they worked at McDonald's or this role. And I asked them about what made it unique and always the same responses come up. People say, you know, we enjoyed ourselves. We had uh, a common vision. We had complementary strengths. But then I ask, you know, did you care about each other? And always overwhelmingly the answer is yes. And so this really sent me on a bit of a journey about why care is so important and how it radiates across a business. And it's very interesting. This is also backed up by Science Gallup. The uh, engagement uh, survey group have found that the biggest predictor of high profit, high productivity, high customer service levels is a positive answer to this. My supervisor or someone at work cares about me as a person, Ooh. and uh, and you know it it was a real journey. And you know there's all that sort of theory around it, but I thought, you know, how can I really prove to people that this actually happens? And so that led to me starting um, the Are Sorry the the, the Caring Co podcast, and uh, myself, my team of just interviewed some amazing leaders, really humble leaders, but just achieving great things.
0: And so what are you seeing? come? Because I think mental health is one of those things that gets talked about a lot, but it still gets swept under, under the carpet in most situations. You know, most em- employers, let alone employees, you know, don't always feel comfortable or more importantly, safe you know, to be able to bring to work, you know, some of the problems that they have. I know in our organization, you know, we have, you know, a bit of an ethos where it's like, I don't want you to leave your problems at home. I want you to bring them to work because they're, as far as I'm concerned, you know, that's baggage that you're holding onto that is going to slow you down. And if I can help you relinquish or unpack, you know, some of that baggage, then you're only going to perform at a a higher level. Why do you think there is still to this day, especially after so much education, such a stigma, you know, around, Not just mental health, Mm. but also the ability to be able to talk about it in environments like the workplace, Mm. you know, because a lot of people, you know, probably say, well, yeah, I've got some mental health issues and a lot of it is exacerbated by my workplace, but I wouldn't be game to bring it to my boss, you know, in case that that positioned me as someone who's weak that could be then made redundant or, you know, performance managed out or even exited.
1: Yeah, it, it, there is still great stigma around mental health. There's been both great progress in terms of communication across the community and that sort of thing, but I still think some people feel that it's a a weakness. And uh, one of the things, as part of my journey, I did a lot of research, and there's a book called "A First Rate Madness" by an American psychologist called um, uh, Kersin Amini. A funny, funny name, but what he did was really look at Some of the extraordinary leaders in our time, uh, people like Abraham Lincoln, um, like Gandhi, like JFK, like um, uh, Mother Teresa, they were all people that had really difficult times, really um, big instances of mental illness. But his his, uh, thesis in this book was that they were great leaders, not in spite of those mental illnesses, but because of them. And what he was really able to determine was that many of those people, through going through these really horrific experiences, learned much more about themselves. They had a greater um, presence and more um, resilience. And also they really had, um, they could really talk about reality and not be overly optimistic or overly pessimistic. And, uh, and so that was some of the insights that I think really changed things but also in my podcast, um, you know, I interviewed, for example, Mike Schneider, who's the CEO of Bunnings. You know, he oversees 60,000 employees. Wow. And Mike talks about his four H's of leadership. And the first thing is honest, humble, helpful, and happy. And, mm-hmm. um, in, uh, you know, he's also interviewed me for the, 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 the staff at, uh, at Bunnings. And he talks honestly about the coaching he gets. He gets coaching for his running. He gets coaching for his business. And he gets coaching for stressful times and and talks about having a psychologist. And, you know, you see people like that talk about this is part of our life and uh, we're still doing great stuff. And Bunnings is the number one most respected corporate brand in Australia. And I don't think it's in any small part because of his approach and his humility. So what does, cause I'm going to assume one of the reasons
0: that a lot of employers, employees don't feel safe, um, to bring it is, you know, not just the stigma, not just the fear, but also the feeling that maybe my workplace isn't a safe place to be able to share this kind of, you know, information about myself. But when you talk about care, you know, as being one of the, you know, one of the key ingredients when it comes to high performance, you know, care implies that there's a level of, you know, interest that might promote safety so that people can feel more comfortable to talk about these things. But from your experience, and it sounds like you've got a lot, what does care look like in the workplace? You know, whether you've got, you know, whether you're a one man band with just an assistant or th- you know, three or four or five players on your team or whether you've got 60,000 people mm. you know, like the CEO of Bunnings, what does care look like in the workplace?
1: Well, it leads to connection and engagement and feeling part of a tribe, and we all have a basic human need to feel part of a tribe, you know, with yeah. our family or in work or with colleagues or sport. We really feel, we really have this need. But it's a lot more than that even, uh, Ku. and Google have done a lot of research about what, what's the core of their best teams. They've spent millions of dollars and they at first they thought it was the individuals in the team. but what they actually found was that was how the teams work together and they identified five areas or five norms of these best teams. And the number one was psychological safety. And what mm. that means mm. is that you know I can be myself, I don't have to act, I can be my authentic self. I can try new things, I can take risks. If things don't work out, um, you know, we'll learn from it and move on. And that's the core to innovation. And, uh, you know, I've seen your work and the way that you talk about groups work as well. And we may use different language about it, but there's a commonality mm. in that when we feel connected, when we enjoy each other's company, when we can be, you know, supportive of each other, it, it makes the group much, much stronger. So what
0: does psychological safety look like? In the workplace what how, how would you be able to let's say for example there's an owner listening to this right now and going yeah. okay well the five norms first one is psychological safety okay that makes a lot of sense i know when i feel safe i you know tend to be more more of myself and perform at higher levels but how as owners do we create psychological safety in an environment like a business when we may not feel psychologically safe ourselves
1: well it's it's what needs to happen? And of course, the owner or the team leader has the biggest uh, say in this, and they set the example. And psychological safety is very fragile because what it means in a team meeting is that everyone speaks approximately equally, so everyone feels that they can provide input into what's happening. Doesn't mean it's a democracy. Everyone feels free to try new things, try take moderate risks to better serve customers or colleagues, and know that if it doesn't work out, there's not a, you know, a really severe thing that happens. We say, what can we learn from this? How can we move forward? And what that does, if we do have high psychological safety and high performance pressure, we're in the learning zone, whereas many, many organisations I've worked with have low psychological safety and high performance pressure, and that puts them in the anxiety zone. And uh, when we're in the anxiety zone or what I call the red zone, we just think very much in black and white. Whereas when we're in the green zone where we have a positive mood, we're 31% more productive, 37% more influential and 300% more creative, according to Harvard business research. So, you know, there's compelling reasons why this needs to be part of the new workplace, a workplace Mm. that can thrive going forward. I think there's going to be a lot of people now
0: hanging on um, this conversation going, okay, the five norms, that was number one.
1: What are the other four? Well, this is, the, this is the crux of it. Number two is dependability. So if someone on the team says they do something, they take ownership and they deliver. Number three is clarity. So everyone has a clear understanding of the goals involved and the um, landmarks along the way. Uh, number four is um, meaning, which means that, uh, you know, we relate to the purpose of the organisation. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then number five is impact, that we feel confident that our team is delivering on the purpose of the organisation. But why psychological safety is so important is yeah, that... it's like it's, the foundation, isn't it? Yeah, but it's just say number two I, is dependability. Well, if you don't have psychological safety, everyone's covering their ass, making excuses, all this sort of yeah. stuff. With psychological safety, it means that you can have robust discussions with respect and, you know, agree to what we can do. There's no hidden agendas or or politics to try and look better than others. It's a mindset where we have, our mindset is we're great rather than I'm great, <laughs>
0: so it's, it's interesting resilience and grit you know that's one of those um um i guess you could say concepts that's grown in popularity over the last few years you know especially after angela duckworth smith's um presentation at you know ted yeah. you know a, quite quite a few years ago where she broke down grit you know and then we hear the stories of elite professional athletes and you know special ops special operatives and, and the training that they get to be able to you know work in high performance scenarios a big part of what you do is training people on developing resilience so before we jump into resilience why do people need resilience especially with the in the in, in the areas that we're talking about here
1: well it really comes down to the, the I think the massive rate of change that every workplace faces if you're not mm. continually changing you're not doing great work so that's a big thing and also you know in covid times uncertainty's been really amplified as well and uh, you know I've done like 142 Webinars in the last 18 months. And uh, I surveyed everyone what they found most stressful over the COVID period, and it's uncertainty. It's the biggest, Mm. biggest area. And so, what we really try to get people to focus on is the certain things. And that's about building resilience. And what can you control? What can you do each day? Because what resilience is, is the capacity Mm. to bounce back and improve your mood. And There's a professor, Sonia Lea Bermerski, who wrote a book called The How of Work, and she said that our mood, or what psychologists call positive effect, is affected by three things. The first thing is our genetics, and that contributes 50%. Some people are just born more robust, more happy than others. The second thing uh, is the events that happen in our lives, and that's only 10%, believe it or not. It's only 10%. Wow. 40% 40% is our intentional actions, what we choose to do each day. And so that's what I describe as resilience is, you know, what you have control over, what you choose to each do each day.
0: And so how do you, because it's interesting, because that was actually going to be my next question, you know, because a lot of people say, well, I just don't have resilience. I, I, I don't think it's within me. And I was going to say, okay, well, is resilience something that people are born with or is it something that can people can learn? And you're telling me right now that there's about a 50% of the game that can be learned, that people can learn resilience. You know, 50% is made up of genetics. Mm. So it's a 50-50 shot. You're either born with it or you're not. But if you're not, you've still got, you know, the capacity to, to develop it. Now, when you look at elite professional sports or when you look at, you know, special operations in the military, they've got certain things that they do to train people to develop resilience or more importantly, to be able to measure resilience and quantify where someone's at, which is obviously in most cases going to be very different to the corporate world or to the, 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 the rest of the world. You know, we're not confronted with physical violence, um, although in our heads, sometimes it might feel like we are. How do you train for resilience in an individual or a team where perhaps there is a lot that's lacking they don't seem to be able to bounce back quick they don't deal with uncertainty well you know because one of the things and I'm gonna pivot here a little bit in this conversation you know one of the things that you know people say to me is you know can I train someone for resilience or should I hire someone who's resilient now again I'd be asking you that question now, as an owner should we be looking for people that already have you know developed levels of resilience or should we be looking for people that you know we see potential to be able to develop resilience in
1: yeah, well, you know, you're cutting a lot of the market out if you choose to cut out people that aren't born with those genetics. But, but the thing is, if if you do the right things each day and you make sure that you are topping up your glasses of of resilience and well being, it you know people can make an amazing contribution. The things that I think are really critical factors is how well people work in a team environment and how well they encourage each other to really build their own resilience. And what I talk about, because I've had five episodes of depression, I've got a a real predisposition, so I'm really very determined to do the right things because I go back. And what I talk about is really three elements of our well-being and resilience. The first is vitality. That's our physical health, you know, exercising well, eating well, resting well being able to recharge ourselves each day the second component is intimacy and this is our relationships we have around us and the the longest uh well-being study ever done is something called the harvard grant study and you can see a ted talk on this and they've been following the same group of 230 people for over 70 years They have terabytes of information on each of these people. Most of them have died now. If you do the maths, they're in their high 90s. But the one overwhelming message that comes from this is the people that have the longest life, the most affluent life, the best sex life are those that have caring and supportive relationships around us. Mm. So having those strong relationships is really, really foundational. And for those relationships, I really talk about, three important areas. A couple of them are really straightforward. The first is it's a positive experience. So you have people around you that support you. You support each other. It's a positive experience around you. The second is that it's consistent. You know, it's not once every six months. It's consistent. You see them regularly. And a lot of people have that as well. But the third component is where men in particular often slip up, and it's can you be vulnerable with that person as well? Can you talk about going through a tough time. So they're the foundations of building what I call your care crew, you know, a group that supports each other, encourages each other, et cetera. And the final element of uh, wellbeing and and, um, resilience is what I call prosperity. And this is our contribution to the outside world. It can come through our career or working for a charity or donating time to a school or looking after a family. All this stuff outside us builds our own well-being. And so it's vitality, intimacy, and prosperity. And so I tell people you have to live like a VIP. And living mm-hmm. like a VIP is consciously topping up those glasses of well-being every day because it's, it's just like a you know, a three-legged stool. If you haven't got all three up there, you're, you're likely to fall over. And so resilience is consciously making the effort to, top up those three areas, you know, every single day.
0: And so as an employer, cause one of the things I've discovered is, you know, sometimes I can see things that my team can't, again, depending on their experience, their maturity, um, not necessarily always wrapped up in age, you know, but sometimes, you know, I could be working with an individual or other owners could be working with an individual and go, okay, this person needs to develop some resilience. Okay. And so what you've given us now is a roadmap. Okay. So there needs to be a focus on vitality. There needs to be a focus on uh, intimacy and relationships and prosperity and contribution. But what does that look like in, let's say, a practical rollout? And let's say I've got a team over here. There's four people in this team. I need to develop some resilience with them. I've got my roadmap of vitality, intimacy, and prosperity. How do I put that into the practical world to go, okay, we're going to do so- one thing every single week you know, in order to develop resilience? What would that look like?
1: Well, it's, it's really planning the week, um, Kerwin. And, and uh, what I have here is my VIP weekly planner. And so nice. once every Sunday, usually for about half an hour, I just sort of sit down and say, okay, when am I going to do my physical health stuff? When am I going to get my exercise? When am I catching up with people? The intimacy is saying, okay, I've got my, my care crew. Um, that's about seven people. Who haven't I caught up with recently? Do I have a coffee or a, a beer or, or a catch up over Zoom in COVID times? And then prosperity. What are the big rocks that I want to knock over this week? and uh, so i consciously plan each week and um and then each day you know put various elements of that together so as an owner what you're
0: suggesting is i can actually provide the
1: framework where i am
0: encouraging i know in our organization you know um we haven't since COVID, but we used to bring in a personal trainer three times a week Mm. so you know one thing we can do for our team is not only encourage them to exercise but create opportunities for them to engage in exercise The secondary is the intimacy and it kind of relates to what you were saying before around psychological safety, you know, and we as owners, we do have the ability to build relationships with our team Mm. uh, and develop levels of intimacy with our team. But also at the same time, from what I'm hearing, you know, have the ability to coach team members on their relationships outside of work at the same time and the prosperity component, the contribution, that's really about being able to help them measure the impact that they're making in the organization and through proper planning that makes it really easy to do. That is probably the most simple um three-step process around developing resilience that i think i've ever seen so what are the biggest mistakes that you see people make when it comes to developing resilience and
1: and grit it all it all uh, really depends on the individual like as part of this i also have a self-care snapshot and that has five questions in each of the three categories the vitality intimacy and prosperity And, uh, you know, one of the things that I often ask people is, which is your emptiest glass? And it it varies, you know, quite often it's the vitality glass, um, but also a lot of people it's also the the intimacy. They realise that they don't have really strong, authentic relationships. And, um, you know, I know prior to my back um, breakdown that, you know, I had good friends, but I was never able to be really vulnerable with them. And uh, you know, since I have come out of it, I really make an effort, or have rituals each week where I can do this. You know, so for example, I meet uh, every Thursday morning. This morning, with a a good mate Richard, who's a partner at KPNG, and he lives close, and we just have you know great walk every morning. We can talk about business. We can talk about what's going wrong in in, in each other's lives. Like he's got a very ill son at the moment, and we support each other. Um, On Sunday, I meet with two other mates and we go for a run from curl curl down to manly. So having rituals in your week where you can often kill two birds with one stone, like, mm. you know, men, I think, like to do stuff. And so, you know, the the great conversation, um, the vulnerability can come as an offshoot of exercising together or doing something together. Um, but it's it, it, it just pays to think about, you know, who. Who, who, can I, who can I call at 2 a.m. and ask for $10,000? And uh, if I don't have someone in that, ca- in that category, you know, how can I build relationships? How can I build more consistency, be, build more vulnerability in some of my relationships to increase that, uh, that bond and that support? Because those relationships are our scaffolding. When things go wrong, if we have good friends around us, they can help to hold us up. And, uh, you know, I still have mental health challenges, but I'm able to say now, I've been doing a bit much. If you want to help, let's go for a walk and um, do do that sort of thing. And being able to let people know how they can support you is a really important element of that as well. So it seems to me you're someone who's
0: um, been in the trenches, but you still have to get in the trenches. And I think that's where I think your information is probably more practical than anyone else's because you're not just talking about this From the third party or the third person this is something that you've not only lived with but you still continue to live with Mm -hmm. you mentioned something earlier about rituals what are some of the other rituals that you engage in on a regular basis that you have found that have not only supported your your development of resilience but also supported your mental health and performance
1: uh definitely meditation you know that's the first thing i do every single day it's like I, i rise usually around. 5.30 5.30 and it's the first thing I do because I just know it's foundational to my health. It really is. And when I think about starting to have declines, you know, it's usually when I haven't been meditating or haven't been exercising. So, you know, I've um, you know been over to an ashram in India. I've, uh, you know, practiced different types of uh, meditation and I just make it the number one thing I do. And um, it, it just starts the day off really well.
0: What style of meditation do you do, you do at the moment?
1: Um, I have tried I have tried a few. Uh, I've tried a group called the Brahma Kumaris, which is a spiritual med- meditation. I've done other guided places. But what I've really settled on, and there's a great um, app for doing this, it's called Insight Timer. And on Insight Timer, there's a 40-day mindfulness meditation put together by Jack Cornfield and Tara Brach, two real legends in Western Buddhism. And they just had this great course. It's free. We can listen for 10 minutes, and they provide elements on how to be more present during the day. And uh, actually, something really interesting happened this week, Ku. and I, uh, my um, my uh, gym owner, where I go to, he sent out in the newsletter, and he quoted you and um what he said was that uh you know you thought what's the greatest gift i can give my son you know it's to be present mm-hmm. and so to be present i'm going to go without alcohol and sugar i'm paraphrasing but that's what i recall yeah. is that a true story is that uh... true story yeah, yeah I, I love you
0: know, it. on his on his seventh birthday in january january this year i um i was lying in bed um on the eve of his on the night of his birthday and i was just because i'd already given him his gift and i was like what else can i give him and i thought i can give him the gift of of presence and and my attention and my calm And i was like okay what are the things that are getting in the way from that and it's like you know whether i'm drinking alcohol once a week or twice a week i always wake up feeling a little bit shitter and a little bit more reactive mm. you know sugar same thing mm. um and also you know uh just processed foods and i just made a commitment and it was originally going to be a month because um, i found myself it was originally going to be a week and then i found myself negotiating with myself and i was like no he's my son he's worth more than that and uh then i went for a month and then yeah i ended up topping almost 18 weeks wow i love that story i think it's been thank good. you that uh, means a lo- he means a lot to me and mm. you know and i and i think um oftentimes in you know when we're when we're dealing with our own stuff you know we need to find reasons to do things and i know for me you know sometimes in my journey i want to do it for myself but there are some times in my journey where i don't mm. um and so i find sometimes you know bringing a value in that is beyond myself has been really helpful
1: and tapping into purpose is so important for that, isn't mm. it? You know, if you, if you have a, a noble purpose about wanting to be better for your parents or for your child or for your partner, um, it's a really good reason to do it. A really good reason.
0: Mm. So, what's your purpose today, mate? Why do you do what you do?
1: Uh, it is really, you know, about help, helping to make more supportive, uh, more caring more resilient groups, be that for family, be it for work, be it for a community you're involved in. And, um, yeah, that's that's what I, I really, and, and part of that is helping people or giving insight to manage, mm-hmm. managing their mood, knowing how to bounce back, knowing what to do to improve our mood and to be in a better place for those around us. So, you know, we all know intuitively that we are better parents we're better friends we're better workmates when we are in a positive mood and so it is really worth invest doing the things that can improve our mood
0: yeah i couldn't i couldn't agree more i um i see myself as someone who's been very privileged because of you know the w- with the reach that i have in social media now because I and mean, then what's really interesting go back five years ago i had you know six years ago i had almost no reach i was almost completely unknown apart from the work that i do Um, you know, now we have an an incredibly blessed reach, um, but it happened, I think the first time, maybe four years ago where we were publishing videos and, you know, I talk about a whole range of concepts, not just business. I'm talking about mental health. I'm talking about addiction, ADHD, you know, relationships, parenting. I just talk about the things that I'm really passionate about, Mm -hmm. but it was about five and a half years ago that I received my first message, uh, that I've probably received now a couple of thousand of from an individual. who says, Kerwin, I just want you to know you've, you've just saved my life. You know, I set out my day to die. I got everything ready. I was going through the process and I was working toward that day. And the day before I had planned my day to die, I came across one of your videos. And that video impacted me. It changed my perspective, it changed, you know, um, my mindset, you know. And I just wanted to send you a message and say thank you. And since then, you know, I've received probably a few thousand messages like that. And I've kind of contemplated, especially, you know, when COVID came out, I was like, fuck, live events are dead. Maybe I should just, you know, take all the work that I've done and, you know, I don't need to work anymore. And I found myself feeling very obligated, um, in a, in a, in a pure way to continue to do what I do, because, you know, when you start getting three, four, and I'm sure you've experienced this yourself in your own work, when you start getting three or four messages a week or more from people who you know attribute you saving their life to just a fucking video and it blows my mind mm. you know and I sit back and I reflect because these aren't just people these are mothers you know these are fathers these are sons these are daughters grandparents you know these are people that if they were you know all of a sudden taken away there would be you know significant um family units that would be affected or there'd be family units that would be affected significantly and so I've always considered what I do to go beyond just making money go you know, beyond just you know building businesses I, I see myself as having a responsibility now um to really help people you know at large but i'm curious from your perspective because there could be a few people listening to this right now who have contemplated suicide you know or are even right now contemplating it in this moment as they listen to this and as someone you know and i i can sit there and i can say well i've thought about taking my own life but i've never done it th- seriously i've had suicidal thoughts but i've never attempted to take my own life You know, i've I, i've thought in the past you know gosh life would be so much better if i just wasn't here mm-hmm. but i've I look at someone like yourself who is still here you've you've had four suicide attempts you talk very openly about it but what I'm curious to know from you is it's a two-parter part one you know someone listening right now is in that state of you know thinking that their life has no meaning no purpose and they want to take it what is one of the best things that they can do to support themselves in this moment in order to get to the other side like you have on many occasions
1: Yeah, no, I, I also have lots of messages I've received. I bet well. you do. And um, the reason that I'm so passionate about my work and sharing my story is that I know when I share my story, it invites other people to share theirs and everyone has a story. That's what I've learned. Everyone has a story, whether it's them personally or someone close to them, someone who's been through really, really difficult times. And one of the reasons I was so passionate about um, you know, getting on board and, Helping to start, are you okay? Was that, you know, I had felt that way. Like I seriously felt that I would never get better. I seriously felt that my family would be better off without me. And when you're in that mental state, and if there's people who there could be in this mental state, you just don't think rationally. Mm -hmm. And it's just crazy to think that your family would be better off without you, but that's what you do think. And so my message is, is that. You know, there is absolute hope. And what I would say is don't try to think too far ahead. Just think about the next week. You know, what can you go for a walk every day? You know, can you catch up with a friend and go for a walk? Can you, um, you know, go and seek help, see a, a doctor or a psychologist to start getting you on the right track? And, uh, and that's where really my weekly planning started. Uh, you know, it was about thinking about the week ahead, not trying to think any more on that. Just, that's all you want to look at. And so what I'm going to do on Monday, what I'm going to do on Tuesday, and then to be grateful at the end of each day, to force yourself to think of no matter what sort of day you had, what three things you're really grateful for. And, um, and that does start to change your mind and your mindset. Uh, And sometimes it can also be medication for people as well. Medication can make a big deal, but I never never advocate making that your only source of hope and action because it is, you know, exercise, it is resting, it is relating to people, and it is having just a little sense of purpose, whatever that could be.
0: And there is so much evidence now. There is so much medical science now pointing to, you know, things like, the effectiveness of exercise absolutely when it comes to, as an antidepressant even the effectiveness of cold exposure you know as an antidepressant you know being in some cases significantly by multiples whether it be exercise or cold exposure more effective than than, than medication itself but yeah i agree there is there are situations where medication is required what advice would you give to the support people you know the, perhaps the people who are now listening to this and going okay that's not me but that's my husband that's my wife that's my son that's my daughter You know, what are some of the best ways that uh, the support network can help individuals who are affected in this way?
1: Yeah, well, when I came out of um, my bad depression and launched my first book, it was launched by John Brogdon, the Black Dog Institute, and it just led to a massive wave of publicity about 150 interviews. But what I learned from that in Talkback Radio and in speeches I gave was that it was often the carers that came up because the people going through it had somewhat lost hope and the carers were really active, of course. But what I've learned to say, and, and uh, my second book was specifically for carers, is to have a mindset that self-care isn't selfish. You've got to take care of yourself. You've got to make sure that you have fuel in your mm-hmm. own tank. You know, you've got to put the gas mask on you, yourself first, because if you let that run down, you can't help the other person. So that's the, that's the first real lesson. The second thing is to just to try and guide the person by asking questions, not being, you should do this, you should, should do that. You know, have you thought about seeing a psychologist? Have you thought about seeing an exercise physiologist to help you get on exercise again? Um, and uh, there also are some great support groups that can help carers. You know, Carers New South Wales, they get got a whole lot of supports for people that do this. and just being around other carers can be really helpful. It's you know, you know, being able to share and people completely understanding where you're coming from can be very, very reassuring as well.
0: One of the things that I'm seeing coming through, and it's not cut through completely yet, but I'm I'm hearing about it being used, you know, as treatments for mental health. I'm hearing about it being used. Um, as treatments for you know things like uh, addiction as a part of other treatment plans nutritional therapy you know we hear about yeah the importance of the gut and how the gut produces you know X percentage I'm not sure if it's 60 or 80 percent of the serotonin in our uh, in our bodies How important have you discovered nutrition is because anyone can exercise okay but if you know one of the things that I like to say is you know you you can't out train a bad diet uh, or you can't you know in mental health you can't outrun a bad diet Um, how important have you discovered with your work that nutrition is and that good health is outside of just you know showing up and and doing your 45 minute workout every day
1: yeah it, it there's no doubt that nutrition plays a big role in mood and there's actually a professor in Victoria called Professor Felice Jacker, and that's been her life's work looking at whole food diet versus processed food diets, and in particular, looking at young people. And she has found, all other things being equal, the people that people have a processed food diet, young people have a 54% greater chance of anxiety or depression than those that have a whole food diet for young for younger people and that's pretty compelling isn't it
0: that's massive that's huge yet still to this day we uh you know we see kids that are served (laughs) in cafeterias at school processed food on a regular basis absolutely mate um i've really appreciated your your candid nature and your open um the openness of this conversation but i am curious to know you know with the experience that you've gone through and everything you've been through what's the best piece of advice that you've ever received you know in your darkest moments
1: i think it was um you know it was about two weeks after a suicide attempt and I was living with my parents at the time and I was just feeling really sorry for myself. I was in the kitchen with my mother and saying, you know, why me, why me? And she fixed me with this um, stare and said, someday you will use this to help other people. I feel emotional talking about it there,
0: And it sounded um, fanciful
1: at the time. But I think if we can think, how can we use this experience to help others, that's a pathway out. And I know when I went from thinking about me to thinking about we, that was a big transformation
0: that's huge thank you so much Graham, you've published five books um including back from the brink which was a uh, a bestseller um also in china what are the other books that you've published
1: mate uh, there's three books in the back from the brink series and then there's okay. and there's and there's a book called thriving naturally and then a book called we care so they're just about how how to have things and one of the other great things that I've done recently as well is, is creating scalable learning programs in organizations that can really magnify you know, my message. So It doesn't just rely on me being in a room, but uh, just really shows how to have these more caring teams that um, do great work together.
0: And so where can people find out more about this?
1: Uh, they're on my website, grahamcown.com.au. And, um, and I also really encourage people to check out the Caring CEO as well, because, you know, there's, there's people there from the managing director of Twitter Australia to CEO Bunnings, um, you know, CEO of the New South Wales Department of Customer Service. Wow. Just extraordinary leaders that, uh, you know, champion both this culture of care and a culture of high performance
0: not sure we'll see jeff bezos on there anytime soon <laughs> <laughs> but it does sound incredible graham um i want to i want to thank you but i also want to acknowledge your courage um for the work that you've done the work you continue to do every day and you, and you show up you know uh as as someone who's experienced my own journey i know sometimes um yeah things can seem a little bleak but for someone who's been through what you have and who continues to do what you do you are such an important person in our society in this moment and you are doing such incredible work Um, and it's been an honor and a pleasure to be able to not only interview you but to share your message with many other people around the world we're gonna put a whole bunch of links into um, everything about you your website any social media Um, but yeah I just want to take the time to say thank you mate for the work that you do because um, you're saving lives and that means a lot
1: yeah thanks cohen it's a pleasure being on the show and i'm also aware of the great work you do as well so back to you as well thank you so much ladies and gentlemen this is unstoppable
0: today with graham cohen This episode is brought to you by Nail It and Scale It, the world's leading fast growth program for businesses. If you have ever wanted to grow your business faster than what you can right now, if you need to make more revenue, if you need more leads, if you need more clients, if you need to know how to plan your business in a strategic way in order to hit big goals, if you need to learn how to scale your business and grow your team and your business so that you have more freedom, then this program is for you. Imagine three days immersed with me where we cover all aspects of business. We do it from an immersive but also an execution standpoint. We execute every step of the way. And we're looking at five key areas. We're looking at your psychology. We're looking at your marketing, your sales, your leadership, and we're looking at your planning and how we integrate these five key areas to grow your business
1: and your brand quickly. So if you'd like to find out more information, KerwinRay.com.